FM. And live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. Welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the headlines for Tuesday the 15th of November. Presidents Joe Biden and Xi Jinping have met for three hours ahead of the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia, and both leaders called for reduced tensions between their countries. President Biden said he's not looking for conflict between the US and China, and there will not be a new Cold War. President, President Xi Jinping told his U.S. counterparts that the world is big enough for both China and the United States to prosper and stressed that differences between the two countries should not be an obstacle to growing relations. Digital asset exchanges are rushing to reassure clients that their funds are safe following the collapse of Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX crypto exchange. Balance sheets of the company, obtained by the Financial Times, appear to show that FTX's liquid assets cover just 10% of liabilities. Customers have rushed to remove funds from cryptocurrency exchanges in favour of storing them using their own systems. Users pulled a net 3.7 billion US dollars out of Bitcoin and $2.5 billion from Ether last week. Hong Kong Financial Secretary Paul Chan said that FTX's bankruptcy doesn't change Hong Kong's cautious approach to becoming a hub for digital assets. He said it only shows even more that the industry needs greater transparency and regulation. Consumer price inflation in India has fallen below 7% for the first time in three months. The consumer price index for October rose 6.77% from a year earlier, compared with a five-month high of 7.4% in September. That was in line with economists' forecasts, but it remained above the central bank's 2-6% to target range for a tenth consecutive month. And Americans grew more worried about inflation in October, as consumers anticipated a possible increase in gasoline prices. The New York Fed's monthly survey of consumer expectations showed inflation expectations for the year ahead rose to 5.9%. That's up half a percentage points from September to the highest level since July. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by James Wong at Lead Securities and Ken Wong from East Spring Investments. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Money Talk! On Wall Street, U.S. stocks snapped a two-day rally after economic data from the New York Federal Reserve showed consumers' inflation expectations for the year ahead rose to the highest level since July. The S&P 500 closed with losses of 0.9% at 3,957. The Dow fell 211 points, or 0.6%, to 33,537. The Nasdaq Composite Index dropped 1.1% to 11,196. Stocks bounced off their lows after a Federal Reserve Vice Chair Lael Brainard indicated the central bank could soon slow the pace of its interest rate increases. Investors are now awaiting the Producer Price Index report, which is due for release later today. Shares of Amazon fell 2.3% following a report in the New York Times that it plans to lay off about 10,000 employees as soon as this week. The cuts will be the largest in the company's history. 
In Europe, the regional stock 600 index rose 0.1%. The UK's FTSE 100 jumped 0.9% higher. And here's a milestone for you. Paris is now Europe's biggest stock market overtaking London for the first time since records began in 2003. The combined value of British shares is now around 2.821 trillion US dollars, while France's are worth around 2.823 trillion US dollars. The policy shifts by President Xi's government, first on Covid and now the property market, have sent Hong Kong stocks back into a bull market. The Hang Seng Index climbed 294 points, or 1.7%, to 17,620. The index has jumped 20% so far in November, putting it back into a bull market. The China Enterprises Index added another 1.9% on Tuesday, bringing its gains over the past two weeks to 21%, and also putting it back into bull market territory, defined as a rise of 20% from the recent low. The Hang Seng Tech Index rose 1.8% on Tuesday. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was down 0.1% at 3,083. Property developers soared following the latest support measures announced by Beijing. Country Garden surged over 45% in Hong Kong. Long Force spiked over 16%, while China Overseas Land jumped 9%. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled 3% lower at $93.14 a barrel. Gold is unchanged this morning at $1,770 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield climbed 5 basis points to 3.86%. And the US dollar index added 0.4%, reversing some of last week's losses. The euro this morning trading at $1.3.25. The buck's worth 140.16 Japanese yen. Sterling is at $1.17.5 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 21 cents. The Chinese yuan is up half a percent at 7.07 in onshore markets. Offshore yuan has strengthened further to 7.04 versus the dollar. Bitcoin fell as low as $15,900 yesterday morning in Asia. That's its lowest level in around two years. Has recovered a little this morning to trade at $16,600. Crypto investors have lost around $2 trillion US dollars in total since the market peaked a year ago. And not an awful lot of movement in Asia-Pacific stock markets at the open this morning. In Australia, the ASX 200 is down 0.2%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is flat. Cosby in South Korea up a quarter of a percent. And it looks like more or less a flat open for the Hang Seng later on this morning. Times 810 with us this morning. Our panel of experts are James Wong, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director at Lead Securities. Morning to you, James. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Ken Wong, Asia Equity Portfolio Specialist at East Spring Investments. Morning, Ken. Morning. Um, let's start with US-China relations. President Joe Biden and Xi Jinping have met for three hours now ahead of the G7 summit, the first in-person meeting between the two leaders since they became presidents of their country. President Biden emphasised he's not looking for conflict between the US and China and there's not going to be a new Cold War. President Xi told his US counterpart that the world's big enough for both China and the United States to prosper and stressed that differences between the two countries shouldn't be an obstacle to growing relations. 
Um, so, James, the outcome of this summit seems to be both leaders very keen to emphasise that they're talking to each other. Um, they don't want these problems uh, to, to escalate. This has obviously been a big overhang, hasn't it, for investors here in Asia Pacific, in particular the state of uh, US-China relations. Do you think there's been enough from that summit uh, to maybe comfort them a little? Oh, yes, uh, especially if we were looking at the picture of Biden and Xi holding hands and shaking hands and smiling. I haven't seen President Xi smiling like that for a long while. So I think that's pretty genuine, uh, uh, a genuine, uh, a friendship over there. Uh, like Biden says, they know he, he knows Xi and she knows him. And Biden stressed, uh, uh, after the press, uh, after their meeting that, uh, uh, he made sure she understands what he says, and he she, he made sure he understands what he what she says. So I think it's uh, it's a, a pretty good communication, and uh, they know where their bottom line is, and it's kind of removed somewhat the uh, overhand, like you said, uh, for the Asia Pacific equities. Ken, you're obviously a big investor in Asia-Pacific um, equities. The expectations from this meeting weren't particularly high, so have they exceeded expectations? Yeah, when you come in with the market where there's no expectations, this is, uh, you know, I would say this is definitely in the right direction. Um, a lot of global investors, whether it be in the U.S., in Europe, in South America, there was a bit of a lack of confidence in terms of, you know, what they were expecting. And overall, you know, there was still a lot of skepticism in regards to what's happening within China. But hopefully, you know, with things gradually opening up in China with more clarity, that does provide more assurances for investors wanting to invest in China. Because ultimately, as what we saw last week, equity markets will behave in a very positive way, especially in a market that's been oversold substantially. So we believe that a lot of investors right now are, you know, still waiting the sidelines. But any positive signs of uh, further improvements in terms of uh, relationships between the U.S. as well as China, this is definitely going to lead into the right direction. I mean, what what I thought was particularly positive was that at least there was this recognition that the countries do have common interests and therefore not letting this relationship spiral out of control uh, is in everyone's interests. And they both seem to emphasise that that was the case. Yeah, I think definitely. The fact is, is that we saw how equity markets uh, reacted last week, especially when there were uh, signs that potentially, uh, you know, things were loosening up in China. And then there were the announcement that President Xi was going to meet with uh, President Biden uh, this week. So hopefully the markets are reacting in a positive way as to some of these signals that they've been uh, seeing uh, recently. Do you think, James, I mean, obviously this is the start, but do you think going on from here this could lead to, um, because we didn't see any details about um, and any narrowing of differences on specific issues, but do you think this provides a platform now to maybe narrow uh, some of those differences on specific issues um, and, and have a genuine shift in relations between the two? I think as long as people think, okay, there will be no war, uh, imminent war situation between the two countries or the regions controlled by the two countries, I think the market will be re relieved. And in terms of specific uh, points uh, of their confrontation, I think the uh, tech war is still going on. The trade situation will not improve anytime soon. And especially the chip war is going on and the talent war is still going on. And, and Biden says the U.S. is still going to be vigorously competing with China. I think that doesn't change.
Mm. I mean, Ken, that was a major point, wasn't it, that these two countries are still going to compete and presumably that means we're not going to see an end to things like the restriction on sales of uh, semiconductor technology to China. Not going to be much change there. Correct. That's where you really have to position your portfolios in a way where you can take benefits of policy supports, especially within China. So for us, when we look at what's happening on the ground, locally, domestically, you know, our belief is that a lot of new economy stocks, which could... Uh, get boosted as a result of uh, policy tailwinds is actually going to be areas that we want to look at. You know, a lot of these new economy sectors like uh, renewable energy or tech self-reliance, you know, as you mentioned earlier, semiconductor or some of the more hardware IT related uh, security or defense related. These are all going to be sectors that we definitely want to keep an eye on, especially when it comes to policy supports within China. Has been a good couple of weeks, hasn't it, for policy support and policy pivots, if you want to um, put it like that. Investors have got uh, very excited on, on the signs coming from Beijing over things like support for the property markets, uh, zero COVID restrictions. Have they got overexcited, do you think, or do you think there is um, a genuine and significant policy change? Um, it's it's a start. The fact is is that uh, what we saw yesterday with uh, signs of uh, providing more support to uh, property related companies, we definitely saw a lot of strong rises in property share prices uh, or real estate company share prices listed here in Hong Kong. And the fact is is that you know this is definitely something that uh, the markets did get a bit of a surprise because the fact is is that you know everyone was waiting for it. It didn't happen, and then you know things kind of cooled down. But it you know with the progressions in terms of supporting the property sector and then hopefully next uh, you know more uh, relaxation of the COVID policies in China to really help push up retail sales figures as well as consumption these are all going to be important aspects because if we want to still see China growing let's say at a pace of five plus percent for next year for its economy you do definitely need to see signs of pickup in property area as well as the key area in terms of consumption. Can it really reach five percent do you think given that we're looking at maybe three percent growth at the moment? Uh, for this year, no. I mean, for this year, I think we're our baseline secure, our baseline case is actually going to be roughly about three and a half percent. But for 2023, uh, we believe that probably the party and the leadership will want to see a further re- recovery in terms of economic growth to somewhere between four to five percent for next year. So that's why it's going to be very important to show signs as to how the government will be more accommodative when it comes to trying to drive that economic growth for 2023. James, how do you see some of these policy changes? For example, first of all, on the zero COVID, what was announced wasn't a huge change, was it? Although there's going to be um, a shortening of quarantine from seven days to five days, it's still there. A lot of the rules are still in place uh, and cases um, are soaring on the mainland. Nevertheless, um, investors have got very excited about it. Do you think it's significant? Uh, yeah, like Ken said, it's a start. Uh, it's long overdue, and people are expecting it or anticipating it. Uh, so, so when it comes out, people tend to ignore the details in its execution and uh, become very optimistic because we suddenly enter into a positive uh, news flow loop. So, um, uh, if you look at the five plus three scheme, it's actually kind of uh, more strict than before because back then, when it's seven plus three, the three days at the end of the 10-day quarantine it's actually for you to walk around with the yellow code you can't you cannot enter restaurants or go anywhere but you can 
get out of your hotel room. But now, the five plus three, the three days at the end of the eight-day quarantine, you have to be inside a home or inside a hotel. For foreigners who do not own a house in China, that means you're going to be start spend the entirety of the eight days inside a hotel. So、mm. it's kind of strict. But in terms of relaxation expectation, I think it did a great job. And、uh, then came the、uh, real estate,、uh, the the bailout plan. Basically, I think people are are really happy about this whole thing. And uh, uh, in terms of fund manager performance, I think there is a new term: fear of. Uh, being materially materially underperforming, so they are trying to add back their positions in the、uh, Greater China area. Do, do you think the、uh, the bailout plan for the real estate sector is it enough to restore confidence in the、uh, the property sector? Well, in terms of what kind of confidence, if we're talking about、uh, people start buying houses again,、uh, probably not just yet. But if if in terms of、uh, all these. All these all these real estate giants are going to fall apart. Yes, this this bailout plan kind of stopped people from thinking that.、Mm. Ken, what what do you think about the bailout plan? I mean, one one worry I have about it is it seems, if anything, to be adding more debt to the existing debt. Is that the right thing to do? Well, it needed to happen because the fact is is that you needed to provide a bit more reassurance to investors because not only for the equity investors, but in more particular for the bond investors. You know, for a lot of the investors who've been holding on to a lot of these、uh, Ch- Chinese real estate property developer bonds, they've gone down significantly in value. And the fact is is that you know that has been a very big overhang. And of course, then you had such a big reduction in terms of overall property sales, startups. You know, and that just created a lot of this、uh, drag in terms of the economy. So in order for the Economy really to start growing at a more meaningful pace again. Property had to be something that you know the Chinese government had to really t-、uh, you know take a look at, have a bit more of、uh, specific、uh, support, and provide a bit more of a relief effort so that it can help drive up the economy. Because ultimately, if the economy continues to stay weak. It does create a lot of havoc and uncertainty into other areas as well when it comes to spending, when it comes to capital expenditures for companies, and that just creates a ripple effect, which has created, you know, and put us into a position that we're currently in. Do you think if you put all these measures together, it at least is a signal now that the economy is now the number one priority, trying to support the economy, boost the economy? Um, this is kind of what we're,、uh, we're we're seeing now, and this is hopefully what we're expecting as well. Because ultimately, you know, when you're looking at, to drive up and you know revive up an economy, you know, we we we've seen how China has been trying to play around with the monetary policies, trying to figure out what's the right way when it comes to lowering interest rates. But then at the same time, you know, there's a lot more needed on the fiscal policy side as well. Earlier this year, during the summer, we saw, you know, a lot of spending in regards to infrastructure. But then at the same time, when you look at fixed asset investments, you need other parts as well in order to really sort of make up for some of the losses that we've seen earlier in the year. So yes, hopefully that this is going to be a, a good start when it comes to reviving the economy as we head into 2023. Okay, James. I want to ask you about what's going on in the digital asset、yeah. uh, markets. We've seen this collapse of、uh, FTX. It turns out its assets now will only cover ten percent of its liabilities. Customers could spend years trying to get any money back、uh, from this. How much has it damaged?、Uh, first of all, the world of digital assets, and secondly,、um, is it going to spread to other asset classes? 
Yeah, <clears throat> we we are suffering from this as well. We had about like five percent of our portfolio uh, put in virtual assets, and uh, about half of that was in uh, was on FTX. So we cannot get some of those money back. And I think SBF, the owner of FTX, uh, single-handedly set back the industry for about five to ten years. It's kind of looking like the uh, burst of the dot-com bubble back in the early 2000s. It's going to take about five to ten years more for the hardwares to catch up, for the confidence to catch up, and then to to have the whole industry flourish again. So uh, in terms of uh, uh, other uh, uh, tokens, I don't think the uh, ripple effect was that strong. But uh, in terms of confidence and platform risk, like I mentioned last time, nobody can avoid platform platform risk in this industry because exchange is basically a custodian. You you mm -hmm. basically entrust your, your whole asset in their hands and when they do not do business honestly, uh, we are all, we or any investor in this business would, would, would suffer. And has this now in effect put you off investing altogether in digital assets for the foreseeable future? No, of course not. <laughs> we still believe in this and we are actively applying for a virtual asset type 1 license uh, with the SFC. We think the, the, the retail part of the SFC's manifesto is going to give the whole industry a boost here in Hong Kong. Ken, what do you think it means for Hong Kong? Because Hong Kong... Um, has got an ambition to be a hub for, for digital asset trading, hasn't it? It wants retail uh, investors to be more involved. Um, what do you think it does to those ambitions, if anything? If there's more specific regulatory oversight in regards to this particular asset classes, it would definitely help. I mean, for us as an investor, um, because it's an asset class where we're not too sure about it when it comes to understanding the fundamentals and the underlying assets. This is sort of, we're in an area where right now where we're not comfortable investing in this particular asset class. But with that said, you know, times are changing and we know how the world is moving definitely, uh, you know, towards uh, a new stage. And the fact is, is that, you know, hopefully with more regulatory oversights, with more information being provided, and specifically more the regulators around the world having a bit more say as to, you know, kind of how they can regulate this particular asset class, that does definitely pave way for more investors to get a bit more assurances in terms of investing in this asset class. Okay, well, thank you both very much. You heard there Ken Wong, Asia Equity Portfolio Specialist at Eastbury Investments. James Wong, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director at Leeds Securities. Times 8.25 on the phone from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesek. Morning, William. Um, so we've got the G20 summit uh, about to start. Japanese Prime Minister Kishida um, is going to be there. It's been rather overshadowed, hasn't it, at the moment by uh, this President Biden-Xi uh, Jinping meeting, which many people are saying is more important than the G20 itself. What are your takeaways from a Japan perspective on that? I mean, I think, you know, add to that the actions we've seen in China since Friday, right? You've seen this kind of uh, perhaps a bit of a U-turn on COVID, uh, you know, quarantines. You've seen a bit of a U-turn on efforts to stabilize the property market, and that's excited markets around the world. And you're right. I think the G7 meeting itself is taking a bit of a backseat to the Biden-Xi uh, Jinping powwow, if you will. But at the margin, I think that, you know, Prime Minister Kishida meeting with Biden also has its own import. And I think... Um, in many ways, Prime Minister Kishida 
is in a bad place in terms of uh, weakening approval numbers. And I think he's looking for any kind of pick-me-up, if you will, uh, for popularity back home. So any positive news that he can generate generate between he and Joe Biden, uh, efforts between Japan and the U.S. to cooperate on economic matters, on currencies, on climate change, anything he can get Joe Biden to talk about in terms of currency terms would also be helpful to Japan. You know, the yen is uh, is up a little bit, but it's been down about 30 percent. And anything that Joe Biden might say to you know, suggest that the U.S. is in favor of a stronger yen might be a good thing for Japan. Both um, Prime Minister Kishida um, and, and, his, uh, and his predecessor have, have done many trips to the U.S. to try and improve this sort of strategic relationship, but probably with mixed success, isn't it? Do you think things may change now, particularly now we've come out of the midterm elections and it seems uh, President uh, Biden has survived um, a big setback there? Does this make it easier to put, uh, to strengthen Japan-U.S. relations? I think it does. I think President Biden will feel like he has a bit more latitude to, you know, become his own foreign policy leader, if you will. I think the difference too is that I think Prime Minister Abe, um, his relationship with was really with Donald Trump, less so with the U.S. I think Joe Biden is trying to work on bilateral relations with the Chinese, you know, basically the, the Japanese Parliament as well. So he's meeting with over time parliamentary leaders here and there. So I think Joe Biden views the relationship with Japan as very important and less transactional than, say, Trump did. So I think, for, you know, in many ways, for Prime Minister Kishida, uh, the Biden relationship is probably a bit more stable than the Abe-Trump relationship was. And again, anything that Prime Minister Kishida can take back to Japan and say, look, you know, we are very important partners and allies of the U.S. government, and we're working on the following three areas, stay tuned, I think would be a very good and uh, positive development for Prime Minister Kishida's approval ratings, which are currently you know, sub 30 percent at the moment. I mean, the thing that uh, Japan is often looking for from its relationship with the U.S. is improved trade, more access uh, to the U.S. markets. Any sign that that's forthcoming? Well, I mean, there have been increased efforts to increase basically bilateral trade between the two countries. But I think for Japan at the moment, the big issue really, again, is the end. And Mm -hmm. I think that any success that Prime Minister Kishida can have, and at least even giving the impression that the U.S. is on board with the idea of a stronger yen uh, would actually be positive for him to go home with. So I think you will see a lot of currency talk. And I think what's interesting, too, is with his approval ratings low, Prime Minister Kishida also is sort of, you know, he's in some ways uh, lashing out against China, talking about sovereignty issues once again. So any communique between the U.S. and Japan, which should suggest solidarity, relative to China also would be positive for Kishida to take uh, to take back home. So it should be interesting. So again, as you were saying before, China certainly is overshadowing the U.S.-Japan relationship right now. But I do think anything that Prime Minister Kishida can come back with would be a positive. I mean, Prime Minister Kishida is going to meet with uh, Xi Jinping at the, uh, at the G20 summit. What does Tokyo want uh, from the relationship uh, with China? What's it looking for here? Well, they want a more stable bilateral trade relation, certainly. And I think they also want to talk more about currency swaps between uh, Tokyo and Beijing. But I do think, you know, for Prime Minister Kishida at the moment, he needs to appear strong and resolute. And he needs to do so within certain parameters where he doesn't alienate the Chinese government. So that's an interesting balancing act for him to walk, you know, meeting with President Biden, meeting with President Xi, trying to figure out a, a kind of way to walk that <laughs> 
to walk that tightrope. I think it will be, uh, cha- you know, challenging his diplomatic skills in ways that we've never seen before. So it should be interesting. Okay, William, thank you very much indeed. Good to talk to you. That's William Pesic, Tokyo-based journalist and author. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And around the Asia-Pacific markets in Tokyo, first of all, the uh, the Nikkei 225 still flats the ASX 200 in Australia, down 0.1%. The Cosby also flat. Looks like maybe a very small gain for the Hang Seng at the open of about 30 points. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock with Money Talk. Coming up after the news is Back Chats with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy. Sunny periods during the day. The maximum temperature is going to be around 27 degrees. The outlook, mainly cloudy with one or two rain patches tomorrow and on Thursday. And then sunny intervals in the following few days. Temperature right now, 24 degrees, 81% relative humidity. Times 8.31. Here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. President Xi Jinping has concluded his first face-to-face meeting with Joe Biden since the US leader took office. The pair spoke for more than three hours on the Indonesian island of Bali ahead of the G20 summit. Mike Weeks has the details. Following the meeting, the foreign ministry said Mr Xi had told his US counterpart that the world was big enough for their two countries to prosper and that they shared more, not less, interests. State media reported that Mr. Xi stressed that the Taiwan question is at the very core of China's interests, is the bedrock of the political foundation of Sino-US relations, and is the first red line that must not be crossed. The president also told his US counterpart that the so-called democracy versus authoritarianism narrative is not the defining feature of today's world. Mr. C said freedom, democracy and human rights are the common pursuit of humanity. A professor of politics has welcomed direct talks between President Xi and Biden, but says there were no changes to the usual talking points. Yosef Gregory Mahoney from East China Normal University in Shanghai said that while the meeting was cordial, at times the two leaders appeared to be talking past each other towards their domestic audiences. He also said there were no indications that tensions over Taiwan would be dialed back positive development because they can really take stock of each other. But that said, we still, again, see the same talking points. And the biggest talking point here that is really sort of compelling is, again, this statement from Biden that this kind of meeting is the key tool for managing the relationship responsibly. And I think what you hear from the Chinese side is that, no, what's really managing the relationship responsibly is the one China policy as the bedrock and the three joint communiques. And as long as you're undermining these things, then, you know, we're going to have problems. The police say their organised crime and triad bureau is investigating the case of an incorrect song being played instead of the national anthem at a rugby tournament in South Korea on Sunday. The force says it would look at potential violations of the national anthem ordinance or other legislation, including the national security law. Organiser Asia Rugby has apologised and blamed human error, but Chief Executive John Lee said the case was unacceptable because the anthem is a solemn matter and officials must follow it up seriously. He was asked how the police would investigate something that happened outside the SAR. Hong Kong police will act in accordance with the law for any investigation. We will see what evidence we collect during the probe and act accordingly. And finally, South Korea says North Korean officials have not responded to their request to retrieve the body of a woman presumed to be North Korean who was found dead in July. Officials in Seoul said the woman was found near the border separating the two Koreas. She was wearing a badge showing the portraits of North Korea's late founder Kim Il-sung and former leader Kim Jong-il. 
There'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about uh, post-COVID-19 conditions with an ongoing study finding that more than 2 million residents in the Territory may have experienced uh, symptoms of what's referred to as long covid According to the Chinese university, about 70% of almost 7,000 interviewees said they'd had at least one persistent symptom, including depression, poor memory and hair loss. Researchers are urging authorities to establish designated clinics to provide early treatment.